Dear brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus Christ, the divide is as old as Adam and Eve in the garden. It's a divide that goes all the way back to God's sentencing phase in Genesis chapter 3 when he said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and her, between your offspring and her offspring. And, he, and you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. It's a divide which in Reformed theology we call the antithesis. It's a divide that God himself not only implemented in the garden, but it's a divide that he continues to uphold to this very day in order to protect those who belong to the seed of promise and those who do not. It's a divide he will continue to uphold until the final day of Christ's coming. And the Lord's Day before us this morning, congregation, invites us to consider that divide, to consider the impact of the antithesis, how this divide that is the antithesis plays itself out in the world that we live in. We need to recognize this morning how God doesn't only call us to, to acknowledge the antithesis in our theology, but also to live the antithesis, to live in light of this divide in our everyday living. To speak of it very broadly, I believe it was Abraham Kuyper who spoke of the antithesis as that divide which cuts through the hearts of humanity. It is a divide that separates belief from unbelief, that separates the children of light from the children of darkness, that, that places this divide between those who are still fallen in Adam and those who have been raised in Christ. And this divide is so sharp that it touches on every aspect of life under the sun. By faith, we come to see that there is no such thing as neutral ground. That's what God was saying when he planted the cross of Christ in the ground. Everything you do and say in your home life, in your school life, your work life, and everything in between is radically changed on the base of what you've made of that cross and what God said at Calvary. And so there is nothing, absolutely nothing under the sun with which the believer and the unbeliever can see totally eye to eye on, at least not really. Commenting on question answer 20 of this, Lord Zay Andrew Kivenhoven notes that here we find the crack that cuts throughout the landscape of humanity, the only division in humanity that's really worth talking about. Most other divisions, he says, are due to sin and circumstance, and none of those divisions are so, insurmountable, are so insurmountable for those who believe. But this one, this division, has to do with the Lord Jesus Christ and how you relate to him and how you relate to his cross. For he is either a rock of salvation if you believe or a stone of stumbling if you do not. And there is no neutral ground in between. It's really the question that lies at the heart of our catechism this morning is this, what have you made of this Jesus? This is the question that shall be asked of every man, woman, and child on the last day. This is the question that will be asked of each one of you here sitting in the pews or listening from home. What did you make of Jesus? And the answer to that question shall be the base upon which God will judge the world. That's the dividing line, congregation. That's the dividing line. That will be the dividing line on the last day, and that's the dividing line that exists even in this present day. Are we walking with God, or are we walking with the world? Are we living by faith, or are we living by sight? 
Have we come in faith to walk after Christ's steps, or are we still following in Adam's steps? According to the Bible, true faith walks with God in a wicked world. True faith walks with God in this world, where being a disciple of Christ often comes at a great cost, but in this world where the reward for so doing is also great, where personal victory is sure. For in this world you will have tribulation, said our Lord. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. And if you are here this morning, having placed your wholehearted trust in him, if you've accepted all his benefits by faith, then you can be sure that you too will overcome this world, this wicked world. According to our catechism, true faith is not only a sure knowledge by which I hold as true all that God has revealed to us in his word, but it is also a wholehearted trust. It is a deep-rooted assurance created in me by the Holy Spirit through the gospel out of sheer grace earned for us by Christ, not only others, but I too have been forgiven of all my sins, have been granted eternal righteousness and final and full salvation. We want to do this morning, congregation, to consider how this faith operates in the world, how this faith operates in a wicked world that, that hates God, that hates the people of God, a, a wicked world that shall indeed reside under the wrath of God. But until that day, the Spirit of Christ calls to keep these three things in mind. First of all, the wedge that faith drives. Second of all, the war that faith declares. And finally, the wind that faith delivers. True faith walks with God in a wicked world. True faith walks with God in this world. In the last few weeks, we've seen the antithesis at work, haven't we? We've seen how in Adam's fall, we send all. And yet by God's grace, we've also come to see how where Adam failed, Christ prevailed. Christ prevailed over sin and death by propitiating the wrath of God and by coming a curse for us. And yet there are still many in this world who, who reject that Savior, who reject the very one whom God gave to pave the way for this forgiveness of sins and eternal righteousness and salvation. And that's where our catechism takes us in question and answer 20. Are all people then saved in Christ just as all were lost through Adam? And the catechism gives us the simple gospel answer, boys and girls. No. Not everyone is saved. Only those are saved who by true faith are engrafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. There's the divide, congregation. There are those who by faith accept Christ and all his blessings, and there are those who do not. We saw this divide at work, didn't we, already in the life of Cain and Abel. Whereas Abel loved God, Cain hated God. And because Cain hated God, Cain also hated Abel, who was a child of God. We saw how Cain brought before the Lord the, the works of his hands, but Abel brought, brought before the Lord the faith of a believing heart. And so Abel was commended by God as righteous. From the very beginning, boys and girls, God has always been after our hearts, not simply the works of our hands. He doesn't just want the offerings that mom and dad give you to put in the collection plate after church. But God is after your hearts. 
desires that you would believe in him by faith, that you would love him and live for him by faith. And that's why David, after he had sinned, wrote those words, For you do not delight in sacrifice, or else I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering, because the sacrifices of God are what? A broken spirit. A broken spirit and a contrite heart. God will not despise. And so it was by faith that Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. And in the same way, it was also by faith that Enoch walked with God in a world that was becoming increasingly hostile to God. And because Enoch walked with God, he was taken up so that he would not see death, leaving behind him a powerful testimony to the world that without faith it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God, says the author of Hebrews, must believe Whoever would draw near to God must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And by faith, Noah built the ark. By faith, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, Noah built the ark for the saving of his household. And in so doing, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. You see what faith does, congregation. According to that mother promise in Genesis 3.15, faith drives a wedge between us and the world. Faith drives a wedge between the people of God and the people of the world. That's the way it was in the corrupt days of Noah, and that's the way it is today. We read in Genesis chapter 6 that when God saw the wickedness of man that was over the face of the earth, how how the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And so God said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the earth. But Noah found favor. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We discover of Noah that Noah was a righteous man who walked with God in a wicked world. He was blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, Moses tells us. What the author of Hebrews is doing here in Hebrews chapter 11 is using the the testimonies of these spiritual forefathers of Abel, Enoch, and Noah, and many others to encourage his readers The author of Hebrews is writing to recent converts, to first century Christians who now find themselves living that divide. They find themselves feeling the effects of that that wedge which now separates them from the world. Some of these recent converts hail from a Jewish background. And so now on account of their newfound faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as God's fulfillment of promise, they have been disowned by their families. They are despised by their parents, despised by their siblings, hated by their friends. There are others to whom the author is writing who hail from a Gentile background, and like their Jewish brothers and sisters, they too are experiencing the ridicule of the world. They too are experiencing the hostility of a hating world as they have now turned their backs on the culture of Rome and on the ways of the world. And the more that these first century Christians seek to be faithful, the the deeper that wedge is driven. And the deeper the wedge is driven, the more real that divide becomes. 
And we know what that's like also, don't we? We too know what it's like to to live in a world where we are despised and ridiculed for faith in Christ. We too know what it's like to live in a world that, that rolls its eyes every time we have something meaningful to say. Just a few days ago, according to the Christian Post, a Christian man selling Christian books in China was sentenced to seven years and a $30,000 fine. Why? For operating illegal business practices, the Chinese government said. This is the world we live in. To greater and lesser degrees, all around the world, those who belong to Christ experience the, experience the cost of being a disciple of Christ because the wedge of faith is driven between the people of God and the people of the world. The original recipients of this letter we read had endured a hard struggle with many sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to, re- to reproach and affliction, and yet they had joyfully accepted the plundering of their property since they knew that they had a better possession. They had an abiding possession. Yes, faith drives a wedge between us and the world. Faith drives a wedge between those who have been found in Christ and those who are still fallen in Adam. And it comes at a great cost. We count that cost each and every day. And yet we do so with the assurance that we have a better possession. That we have an abiding possession that we wait for in faith. And so the author of Hebrews by the Spirit of Christ is calling these readers as well as us this morning to persevere in that faith. If you still have your Bibles open to that chapter, you'll notice how seamlessly the author could have moved from verse 39 of chapter 10 right to the command of verse 1 of chapter 12 to to lay aside every weight that hinders and, and to begin running the race with endurance. But he doesn't do that, does he? No, rather, he invites us to to walk with him down the hallway of faith, to to illustrate for his readers and to illustrate for us how this is the way it's always been. Throughout the ages, God's people have endured this suffering, this hostility of the world. Throughout the ages, they have lived in light of this divine that, that has separated them from the world at a great cost it may come. All the while having the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. All the while knowing that that they had a possession. An abiding possession that would never perish, spoil, or fade away. By faith, Noah built the ark for the saving of his household. And in so doing, he condemned the world. In so doing, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. True faith walks with God in the wicked world. True faith declares war against the ways of the world. And that's what Noah was doing, and he began to build this ark. When God saw how corrupt the ways of man become on the earth, God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Therefore, make for yourself an ark. And then we read in verse 22 that Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Clinging to God's word, Noah began this building project because that's what true faith does. True faith takes God at his word. By faith, Noah began to build this ark, having the conviction of things he had not yet seen. 
True faith takes God at his word, even in a world where those around us refuse to listen to God's word. And that's what our catechism is saying as well. That's the first component of true faith, that it is a a sure knowledge. It is a knowledge and conviction that everything God has revealed in his word is true. That's similar to how the author of Hebrews defines it. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things that we cannot see. In other words, true faith trusts God. True faith takes God at his word. By faith, boys and girls, we understand that God made us and that God made the world. By faith, we make that confession in a world where where people shudder at the thought. By faith, we make that confession world that, that despises that very idea. There's a, a creator God to whom all shall give an account. But we make that confession by faith. And the world says, how can you believe in someone you can't even see? But the answer, boys and girls, is very simple, isn't it? We believe in him by faith. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the, world, by the word of God. By faith, we have the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Knowing with certainty that whatever God says, he will surely do. And so it was by faith, people of God. It is by faith that we wrestle against the world, that we wage war against the way of the world. Counting the cost, enduring the sufferings and sorrows, taking to heart those words of the Apostle Peter, for it is a gracious thing. It is a gracious thing in the sight of God when one endures sorrows and sufferings while suffering unjustly. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. True faith gives us eyes to see that that in this life, even our sufferings and sorrow, the, the hostility that we endure is God's avenue unto future grace and greater glory. That it is a gracious thing when we suffer and endure sorrows while suffering unjustly. True faith walks with God in the wicked world, following in Christ's steps. True faith wages war against the way of the world. True faith does that with wholehearted trust, that if God vindicated believing Noah and his family in the flood, then God will surely vindicate us as well. That if God saved Noah through the ark, then God will also save us through the cross. And if God gave Noah victory over the entire world, only him and his family, then God will also give us victory over the entire world. And so the author of Hebrews writes to these first century Christians who seem to now be on the brink of simply cashing it in. Perhaps we can just go back to the old system, some of them are saying. Things were pretty good then. God was gracious. God was was speaking to us and the lambs that were slaughtered on the altar. Can't we just go back? Then we can, can avoid this ridicule. Can't we just also worship in these other temples to foreign gods? It's too hard. It's too difficult. But to these Christians, what does the author of Hebrews say? Don't you remember when you first believed? Recall the former days, how how zealous for the faith you endured these strong hardships, how you endured these sorrows and sufferings, how you endured the plundering of your property, coming alongside those who had been imprisoned on account of Christ, 
and how you did that knowing and believing in your hearts that, that you had a better possession, an abiding one. By the Spirit of Christ, he urges us and his readers this morning saying, so do not throw away your confidence. Do not throw away your faith, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For God has spoken in his word, chapter 10, verse 37, yet a little while, says God, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we do not belong to those who shrink back, says the author of Hebrews. We do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. In his little book entitled The Certainty of Faith, the prominent Dutch Reformed theologian Herman Bovink writes that the true believer considers nothing too costly for the preservation of faith, for it is more precious to him than home or country, more precious to him than spouse or children, is more precious even than his very life and all the world could offer. For he who loses his faith loses himself, his soul, and his eternal salvation. But he who keeps his faith also keeps himself, even if he should lose his very life. And even as true faith endures the ridicule of the world, even as it wages war against the ways of this world, Bavink says it is heroic and fearless. It is heroic and fearless, for though there be as many devils in the world as there are shingles on the roof, faith fears God alone and no one else. With whom are you walking this morning, people of God? Are you walking with God, or are you still walking with the world? Because if you're walking with God in faith, then, you, then to you belongs the great assurance this morning of personal victory, personal vindication, personal victory over sin and Satan and death. The, langu- the language of our catechism, you see, is as humble as it is bold. Not only others, it says, not only others, but I too. I too have been granted forgiveness of sins and eternal righteousness and salvation. Christ, by his Spirit, kindles that confident, childlike trust in our hearts so that we believe that his salvation is not just for the person sitting next to you or for the preacher standing in front of you, but that it is for me. That in faith we say that in humility, but with all boldness, I am forgiven. I sinned yesterday, I sinned this morning, but this I know, I am forgiven. And I am righteous in the sight of God, and I am saved. Faith delivers that final win, that final victory over the world. It is not only a true knowledge by which we hold everything God reveals in His Word is true, but it is a deep-rooted assurance. It is a wholehearted trust. Worked in me by the Holy Spirit, we confess not only others, but I too have had all my sins forgiven, have been made forever right with God, and have been granted salvation. All these things earned for us by grace through Christ's merit. This is the believer's confession, people of God.
This is what I need to believe if I want to, to live and die in the joy of Christ's comfort. And this is what you need to believe as well. You too need to believe that by faith in Christ, you've won the war. You need to believe as well that by true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've overcome the wickedness of the world. And so even as we experience the wedge, as we engage in the war, we do so knowing all along that to us already belongs the victory. By faith, we say today, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. By faith, we say today, as we heard in our assurance of pardon, that we have already been been seated with Christ in heavenly places. Personal victory, that's the reward for those who by true faith have been engrafted into Christ and who have come to to accept and share in all his benefits. We need to recognize this morning, boys and girls, that faith is not just a, a matter of opinion. It's not just guessing or conjecture, but true faith is a sure knowledge. It is a firm, a wholehearted trust that is strong enough to take its stand against the ways of the world. By faith, Noah built the ark for the saving of his household, and in so doing, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. In verse 18 of Genesis 6, having promised to destroy the earth, God spoke to Noah, saying, Yes, I will destroy the earth, but but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your Sons, wives, and you shall be saved. For the friendship of the Lord, says the psalmist, is for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant. And so as Noah built that ark, people of God, that ark was simultaneously a testimony of God's wrath against the world on the one hand, as well as a testimony of God's deliverance for the righteous on the other. And in that way, you see, Noah's ark was a shadow, wasn't it? Noah's ark was a shadow of Christ's cross. Just as the people of the world would have ridiculed Noah for for building this ark, so too the people of the world, having no regard for the wrath of God, ridiculed and mocked the Savior as he hung upon the cross. Just like Noah's ark, the cross was folly to those who were perishing. What does Paul say? To those who are being saved, it was the power of God. To those who are being saved, the cross of Christ, like the ark of Noah, was God's wisdom through which he shamed those who thought they were wise, through which he shamed those who thought they were strong, so that no man might boast in the presence of God, but it's that we might boast this morning in the cross of Christ. And so what we find here in the life of Noah, what we find here in our catechism, is that true faith walks with God in a wicked world. And walking with God, true faith is, is granted the great reward, forgiveness, righteousness, and salvation. For just as believing Noah was saved through the judgment waters of the flood, so too have we been saved from the judgment of the curse. And if you've placed your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be sure of that this morning. It is your 
personal comfort, your personal confession, your personal victory. If Lord's Day 6 answers the question, who is this Savior that I need, then this Lord's Day answers the question, how then do I make him mine? And the answer we discover is really quite simple, isn't it? Believe the gospel. Hebrews 11, verse 6, whoever would draw near to God, all he must do is believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. In other words, to make the Savior yours, you simply believe the gospel. That's all the Christian needs to believe, all that is promised us in the gospel, the gospel which is summarized in the creed that we confess every Sunday. Not by the works of our hands, but simply by the believing faith of our hearts, worked in us by the Holy Spirit, by the gospel. By faith, we not only come to understand that the universe was created by the word of God, but by faith, we also come to understand the words we'll sing in just a few moments that through Christ's merit, we inherit. Through Christ's merit, we inherit life and peace and happiness. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before you again in awe of your grace. We come before you again in awe of the reality that in the midst of our misery, you bid us mercy. And that though we were dead in our sins and trespasses, though we too were once on the side of the serpent, your Holy Spirit saw us wandering and he gave us faith. He kindled that faith in our hearts whereby we know by the gospel that we have been forgiven, that we have been made right with God, we have been granted eternal salvation. In light of this salvation, Father, we pray that you would help us to walk with you in a wicked world that we would, by our very lives and living, be a testimony that God has saved us from the wickedness of the world. Father, we pray that you would give us endurance as we endure the wedge that drives between us and those around us. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world, for those particularly in China, where they certainly know the pains of this divide more tangibly than perhaps we do here in Canada. Father, we pray that you'd give to them and also to us that promise and that assurance that though the world might slay us and take everything we have, to us belongs a better possession, a biting one that will never perish, spoil, or fade away. Father, we pray that by faith we too would wrestle against the ways of the world. We would not only acknowledge the antithesis, but that we would live it. We would live this divide conscientiously as those whom God has saved from the wrath of God. Father, we pray that you would impress upon our hearts as well the great assurance that belongs to us, the personal assurance. We thank you, Lord, that each one of us here, as men and women, as boys and girls, can make this personal confession that not only others, but I too, have been forgiven of all my sins. Lord, these things we pray in the name of our Savior and for his sake. Amen.